If you love History Extra Long Reads, then please do leave us a review. It helps other people to find us, which helps us to keep making the show. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Extra Long Reads, where we take a deep dive into the past, bringing you the very best of BBC History magazine, with fascinating articles from leading historical experts. A century ago, in January 1924, Ramsay MacDonald entered 10 Downing Street as Britain's first Labour Prime Minister. As Richard Toy reveals in today's long read, MacDonald's rapid rise stunned his rivals, but it wasn't long before they were preparing their revenge. This feature originally appeared in the January 2024 issue of BBC History magazine and has been voiced in partnership with the Royal National Institute of Blind People. Late in the morning of the 22nd of January 1924, Conservative Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin stepped out of the rear of Downing Street, hailed a passing taxi and headed to Buckingham Palace for an audience with King George V. Baldwin was making the short journey to hand in his resignation, one taken by so many leaders before and since. But there was one key difference to his experience from those of earlier Tory MPs. This time he was to be succeeded not by a leader of the Conservatives' long-time opponents, the Liberals, but by Ramsay MacDonald, who would shortly be confirmed as the first Labour Party Prime Minister in British history. These events marked a striking reversal of fortune for MacDonald. Less than a decade earlier, his staunch opposition to the First World War had made him one of the most hated men in Britain. He now made the leap to Premier without having ever previously held high office. This was also a moment of truth for the Labour Party itself, less than a quarter of a century old and forming a government for the first time. 
For many Britons, the all-too-recent horrors of the Bolshevik Revolution were proof that socialists, even ostensibly moderate ones, could not be trusted with power. The king, a cousin of the slain Russian royal family, was also apprehensive. During his first audience with MacDonald, he expressed his hope that the Prime Minister would do nothing to compel him to shake hands with the murderers of his relatives. It was probably inevitable that the Labour Party, representing the organised working class, would one day form a government, but not that this would happen as early as 1924. Had Labour's Conservative and Liberal opponents played their respective hands differently, the moment of truth could have been significantly postponed. Understanding the origins of that moment requires a step back to the late 19th century, a time of accelerated technological developments and growing wealth, but also of radical inequality. The common phrase, poverty in the midst of plenty, encapsulated the moral case for change. New socialist groups proliferated and trade unions boomed, winning significant victories for unskilled workers. MacDonald was born in Scotland in 1866, the illegitimate son of a farm labourer and a maidservant. He took an early interest in socialism, but continued to put his faith in cooperation between the Liberal Party and the forces of labour. Eventually, he concluded that the Liberals had little interest in fielding working-class candidates for public office. In common with many of his generation who urgently sought social progress, he reached the conclusion that an independent party was needed. And in 1900, when the Labour Representation Committee, LRC, a forerunner of the Labour Party, was formed, MacDonald became its secretary. Three years later, MacDonald struck a deal with the Liberal chief whip, Herbert Gladstone, such that 35 LRC parliamentary candidates ran unopposed by Liberals, an arrangement that proved key to a breakthrough at the 1906 general election, when the LRC won 29 seats and was subsequently renamed the Labour Party. Yet by the time the First World War broke out in 1914, Labour had made limited further progress. Pacifist MacDonald resigned as chairman of the Parliamentary Labour Party, PLP, in opposition to the war, in the process becoming a target for popular hatred. However, his party rival, Arthur Henderson, accepted positions in the Liberal-led wartime coalitions of H.H. H. Asquith and David Lloyd George, giving Labour its first taste of life in government. The party also stood to benefit from the passing of the 1918 Representation of the People Act, which extended the franchise to millions of new voters, including all men over the age of 21 and women over the age of 30 who met certain property qualifications. By 1922, MacDonald had bounced back. At that year's general election, Labour, now led by J.R. Clines, won 142 seats, becoming the official opposition for the first time. When Parliament met following the election, MacDonald was once again chosen as PLP chairman, albeit by just a few votes, otherwise the first Labour Prime Minister could have been the now-forgotten figure of Kleins, who lacked the force, charisma and eloquence that made MacDonald a far more convincing candidate for number 10. Labour's appeal was boosted by the seeming failures of capitalism manifested in mass unemployment. Outraged at the Conservative government's inaction, members of the Red Clydeside group of radical MPs stirred up rowdy commons scenes in protest, presenting themselves as the champions of the poor. To some observers, though, they appeared sour, militant class warriors. The arch-conservative Morning Post decried their speeches as examples of Bolshevist frightfulness, well calculated for the end in view of disgusting the workers and everybody else with Parliament.
MacDonald worried about the consequences of such antics, appealing to his MPs for a greater measure of self-restraint and for a realisation of the fact that when a Labour government arrives, it will be greatly hampered if, in the meantime, parliamentary government has been destroyed. Clearly, MacDonald believed that the first Labour government was a matter of when, not if, a confidence reflecting his evolutionary vision of socialism. Yet even he must have been surprised by the speed at which events then moved. In 1923, Baldwin, having been Prime Minister for only a matter of months, called a snap general election. He had concluded that the high levels of unemployment afflicting Britain could not be solved without the introduction of protectionist tariffs. But this plan, he believed, required the endorsement of the voters before it could be put into action. His startling move had the dual effects of reuniting the Liberals under Asquith's leadership and giving a fillip to Labour, which broadly shared the Liberals' free trade values. Polling took place on the 6th of December, resulting in one of the great upsets of British political history. The Conservatives secured 5.5 million votes, 38.1% of those cast. Labour, 4.4 million, 30.5%, and the Liberals, 4.3 million, 29.6%. This translated into 258 seats for the Conservatives, 191 for Labour, and 159 for the Liberals. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Though the Tories lost their majority, they remained the largest party, and Baldwin did not resign immediately. Instead, ministers drew up a King's Speech, a programme of legislation to put before MPs, thus putting the onus on the Liberals, now effectively kingmakers, to either keep the Conservatives in office or let Labour take over. It was an invidious choice, but despite the unease of some of his supporters, Liberal leader Asquith decided to give Macdonald his chance. When Parliament met in the new year, the government's defeat set the stage for Baldwin's cab ride to the palace as newspaper placards declared Lenin-dead official Ramsay MacDonald Premier. According to Jack Lawson, a former miner who now became a junior minister, the coming of that first Labour government was a terrific shock to the divinely ordained to rule element in the country. 
There was certainly something of a change in style, as demonstrated by a story told about the new colonial secretary, J.H. Thomas. His private secretary, inherited from the previous conservative minister, was asked how he liked his new boss. Very much indeed, he responded. It's much more intimate. However, the new administration failed to challenge the established political and economic system. With a shortage of experienced personnel, it was necessary to make some appointments from beyond the ranks of the Labour Party. For example, the Liberal grandee Lord Haldane became Lord Chancellor. MacDonald acted as his own foreign secretary, working tirelessly towards Franco-German reconciliation. He sent Arthur Henderson to the Home Office and made the austere Philip Snowden, another rival of MacDonald, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Snowden's so-called housewife's budget cut duties on sugar and tea but did not feature the capital levy, a tax on fortunes that had previously featured in Labour's programme, yet which was thought to be electorally unpopular. Unemployment benefits were extended and some temporary public works schemes launched, but lacking a majority and clear policy solutions, the government failed to solve the problem of the dole queue. MacDonald himself was hardly able to enjoy his success, though his daughter, Ishbel, one of his five surviving children, served as his hostess in Downing Street. The widowed MacDonald suffered from chronic loneliness, and his low moods sometimes spilled over into bitterness towards his colleagues. There were increased tensions between the parliamentary and trade union sides of the labour movement too. Industrial action continued to break out in spite of ministers' appeals to union leaders such as Ernest Bevin. To Bevin's disgust, the government threatened to use the Emergency Powers Act to force striking dockers back to work. However, Labour enjoyed a key domestic success in the form of a housing act, pioneered by Clyde Side MP John Wheatley, which led to a noted increase in building. On the international front, MacDonald's administration took steps that signalled a break with the approaches taken by preceding governments. It moved quickly to bestow diplomatic recognition on the new Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR or Soviet Union, formed in December 1922. Two treaties were later negotiated with the Soviets to settle past disputes and create new trade relations. MacDonald scrapped plans for a naval base in Singapore, though the Conservatives later reversed this decision. Importantly, working with the French, he also helped win preliminary approval from League of Nations member states for the Geneva Protocol for the Pacific Settlement of International Disputes. After the Labour government fell later in 1924, its Conservative successor declined to ratify this proposed new mechanism, which would have made arbitration compulsory and bolstered the role of the World Court. Whether the Geneva Protocol would have worked is a moot point, but the fact that the Tories rejected it allowed Labour to develop a narrative in which European peace and disarmament could have been achieved if only the League had been strengthened, as the advocates of socialist foreign policy had wished. Yet with Labour only the second largest party in Parliament, it was inevitable that Macdonald's government could not last long. While his enemies watched for a moment to strike, the Prime Minister's best hope, he believed, was to show that his party was capable of governing and had no intention of indulging in Bolshevik-style experiments. Finally, though, the Conservatives and the Liberals joined forces over an issue that they believed would play out unfavourably to Labour. J.R. Campbell, acting editor of the communist newspaper Workers Weekly, had been charged with incitement to mutiny as the result of an article he had published urging soldiers not to fire on strikers. 
The Attorney General, Sir Patrick Hastings, then withdrew the prosecution, a move that could be portrayed as ministers being soft on communism. MacDonald made a probably unintentionally misleading statement about his knowledge of the affair, and as anger swelled, the government was heavily defeated in the Commons, triggering a general election. That campaign was marked by a particularly notorious episode that Labour came to regard as a classic example of Tory dirty tricks. On the 25th of October, shortly before polling day, the Daily Mail published a very secret letter of instruction from Moscow, which discloses a great Bolshevik plot to paralyse the British Army and Navy and to plunge the country into civil war. This letter, purportedly written to British communists by Grigory Zinoviev of the Communist International Comintern Movement, was almost certainly forged, probably by someone with connections to Britain's secret security organisations. Even if the scheme had been real, it would have stood little chance of success, but it played on the genuine fears of many voters, and the Tories made the most of it. In the event, the election brought a Conservative landslide, ousting MacDonald after just nine and a half months in the top post. Bruised but defiant, he survived to fight another day, serving as the head of another minority government from 1929. Two years later, he joined with Tories and Liberals to form the so-called National Government, continuing as Prime Minister for another four years till 1935. But he was never forgiven by those within the Labour Party who believed he had betrayed them. Labour, it could be argued, nevertheless owed MacDonald a great deal, because of his earlier actions. The result of the autumn 1924 election was far less bad than it first appeared. True, the Conservatives won a highly impressive 419 constituencies and a 48.3% share of the vote, but though Labour's representation in the Commons was reduced to just 151 seats, its share of the vote climbed to 33%. The real losers in that election were the Liberals. They took just 40 seats, with their portion of votes cut to 17.6%. If MacDonald's plan had been to ensure that Labour would henceforth provide the only electorally credible alternative to the Conservatives, he had succeeded spectacularly. On the face of it, such a short-lived government might seem an abject failure. Taking the long view, though, MacDonald's determination to showcase Labour's capacity for steady, competent government proved a remarkable strategic success, one that seeded a century of political strength. Today's long read was written by Richard Toy, Professor of History at the University of Exeter. His latest book is Age of Hope, Labour, 1945 and the Birth of Modern Britain, published by Bloomsbury Continuum in 2023. Thanks again to the Royal National Institute of Blind People for their help voicing this article, which first appeared in the January 2024 issue of BBC History magazine.